A cruel fact of life is that the folks who have made the biggest impact on us might not be around to share some of our biggest moments. But we think of them almost immediately when major events happen. Please raise your white hand. Okay. Do you solemnly swear that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States? against all enemies, foreign and domestic. When Georgia voters elected two Democratic U.S. Senators in a historic runoff, Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, many minds, including mine, turned to John Lewis. How we wish the iconic lawmaker and civil rights activist could have been here to see his pastor and former intern make history. Of the office on which you are about to enter, so help you, God. Congratulations. When Kamala Harris took the oath of office as America's first female vice president, I thought of my mom, who, like the VP, was a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. I just know she would have been proudly decked out in their signature pink and green on Inauguration Day. And in the summer of 2020, when our nation exploded in protests and anger at the killing of George Floyd, a black man, by a white police officer, when a deadly virus was claiming tens of thousands of lives in black and brown communities, when what was happening to our people started to feel too much like a shift in the wrong direction, one name kept coming to mind. Over and over again, Pauly. I feel as fully an American as anyone else. This is my country. Nobody will rob me of my birthright. I have as much right to speak as an American as anyone else. Anna Pauline Murray, Pauly to most, is someone I never got a chance to meet. But if you're talking about impact and influence on the way I think about justice and equality— we may as well be close as kin. Polly Murray was an activist, a lawyer, a poet, and a priest. She was a warrior for social justice who always kept people's feet to the fire when they stumbled on the path to progress. So as protests and a pandemic swept this country, I kept thinking, what would Polly Murray think and do about all this? Would Polly Murray, the activist, be joining in the marches? Would Pauly Murray, the lawyer, write up a sweeping legal document arguing for better health care access during a pandemic? Would Pauly Murray, the priest, rebuke the tear gassing of protesters in front of a church so a president's path could be cleared for a photo op? My best guess is yes. She would do all that and much more. I'm Leonida Inge, and this is Pauly, a podcast from North Carolina Public Radio about the power of one person to speak truth and change what's possible for us all. My feeling is that if this country is to survive, we must live together in harmony. 
we must live together in a sense, in a spirit of harmony. You may call it brotherhood or whatnot, but we cannot survive as a divided country. This is Pauli Murray in a 1976 interview with UNC's Southern Oral History Program. Her message of harmony sounds a lot like the calls for unity coming from politicians on both sides of the aisle these days. But can we really come together in the wake of a former president whose rhetoric fueled the flames of white supremacy? After a violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol spearheaded by a mostly white mob. Here's the thing. If Anna Pauline Murray was saying it, she must have believed it. She was a product of a racially segregated America, shaped by the particular pain and trauma that went along with being a black woman in that time. Despite all the barriers she faced, Polly always carried a sense of hope. And God knows we need some hope right now. But with other social and political divisions only getting louder, would the world listen if Polly were alive today? After all, she doesn't have the name recognition of an MLK or RBG, but not all heroes have specials on the History Channel. So here's what we need to consider to put Pauli's message of hope and reconciliation to the test. First, Pauli was a beautiful writer. She didn't waste words. Give me a song of hope and love and a brown girl's heart to hear it or to receive it. I love that. I mean, I, I feel hailed in that. This is Alexis Pauline Gums. She lives in Durham, North Carolina, the city where Polly grew up. She's quoting a verse here from Polly's collection of poems called Dark Testament. Gums is a poet herself. She's also a National Humanities Fellow, a Black feminist scholar, and a community organizer. And she says Polly Murray's legacy her spirit continues to guide her. I feel like Polly Murray's life continues to just like be a windfall of gifts to my everyday experience. You know, like I, and I feel like, I feel like I'm that brown girl sometimes, you know, like calling forth who, who would hear this song? I feel like, oh, that's me. You know, I'm raising my hand and there are many of us. Gums calls herself a queer black troublemaker, which sounds a lot like Polly, in my opinion. Polly was a black Southern woman who could stir it up, but she also expressed a gender fluidity in her private life, sometimes referring to herself as a man. For the purpose of this podcast, we're using she and her pronouns to describe Polly, because that's how she identified publicly. Okay, back to being a queer black troublemaker. Alexis Gum says it's her responsibility to follow Polly's lead and always challenge the status quo. You know, one of the things that I see in Polly Murray's life is this audacity, right? Like just really every institution that Polly Murray interacted with was needed to change, like needed to fundamentally change. And Polly Murray was not afraid to say that, you know, just just the the clarity of vision and and an unapologetic commitment to, to speaking the truth. The next thing to know about Polly Murray is that when she wrote, she wrote the truth. Truth was her sword, a weapon she wielded against injustice almost every day she walked this earth. 
operating under a sinister combination of racism and sexism, there must have been a thousand ways she was compelled to shrink herself and say only what was needed to get by and make nice. Instead, she followed her instinct to commit to truth-telling, as if it were an act of survival. I must always be concerned, not theoretically, but I must be involved with and necessarily concerned with racial liberation. But I must also personally be concerned with sexual liberation because the two, as I often say, the two meet in me, the two meet in any individual who is both woman and a member of an oppressed group or a minority group. Polly came up with a name for this kind of discrimination. She called it Jane Crow. No matter where she went, Jane Crow followed, and Polly was always there to meet it head on. Like in 1941, when a 30-year-old Polly Murray entered Howard University Law School and found old Jane sitting pretty, waiting for her. I think she really flourished at Howard. She led some of the early sit-ins in Washington, D.C. during World War II. She ended up graduating at the top of her class. This is Serena Mayeri. She's a law and history professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, but she certainly noted the degree to which Howard wasn't immune to the kind of casual sexism that was not uncommon in the legal world during those days. There was a notice on the bulletin board uh, very shortly, maybe two or three weeks after uh, school began, which said all male members of the first year class are invited to Dean so-and-so's for a smoker. There were only two females in the entire school, one of which was myself. And I was so stunned. You know, I couldn't imagine, what is all this? And so what I'm really saying is that removing the racial factor, Howard University being a school where the racial factor was not a problem, immediately the sex factor was isolated. And so my whole experience at law school was an experience of learning really for the first time what a, in a way, a crude kind of sexism can be. Polly didn't let go of her battle with Jane Crow. She was determined to undermine its grip on the lives of black women. Two decades after her time at Howard, Polly argued for challenging sex discrimination by linking it with racial discrimination. Her legal writings culminated with an article in 1965 that became a bombshell in the courts. It was called Jane Crow and the Law. Polly Murray comes in and says, let's litigate under the 14th Amendment, under the Equal Protection Clause. She essentially argued that sex, like race, was used to limit and oppress individuals for reasons that were really unrelated to their ability or their humanity. Murray predicted at the time that the article would be, she said, cited to kingdom come. And she was quite right. Um, it's one of the most cited early articles on women's rights in the law. Soon after the article was published, it came across the desk of another lawyer fighting for gender equality, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Paulie had the idea that we should 
interpret the text literally. It said any person, not any male person. This is the late justice speaking with documentary filmmakers in 2017. She wrote this remarkable article called Jane Crow and the Law, where she called attention to all the laws that restricted what women could do. There were many restrictions, many things women couldn't do, but unlike race discrimination, they were all rationalized as favors for the ladies. For example, women were not permitted to serve on juries. I think Murray, more than anyone else, as uh, Justice Ginsburg often said, was responsible for this constitutional strategy that focused on litigation under the Equal Protection Clause based on this analogy between race and sex discrimination. And I think that campaign, which was executed by Ginsburg and others, was quite successful. And that was tremendously influential. When I look over all of Polly Murray's accomplishments and see how many papers she wrote, how many people she worked with, I begin to think the woman never slept. She was determined to get her point across no matter what it took. Which brings me to another thing you should understand about Polly. Justice was more than something she desired. She demanded it. Let me give you a quick example. In 1965, the same year she published Jane Crow and the Law, Polly swapped her pen for a bullhorn. She was fed up with the federal government dragging its feet on equal protections for women. So she made a speech proposing a women's march on Washington to speed things up. This immediately caught the attention of one of the biggest feminist icons at the time. And that was when Betty Friedan... um who was that a journalist who had authored the best-selling book, The Feminine Mystique, reached out to Murray. And Murray then introduced Ferdinand to her own large network of advocates for women. And along with several others, they co-founded NOW um, in October of 1966. NOW, as in the National Organization for Women, has more than 500 chapters across the U.S. today now addressed barriers to gender equality, but fell down on the job of working for full justice. Soon after Now was founded, Pauly became frustrated with the organization's lack of attention toward black women. White women, who are feminist, must recognize that black women or other non-white women have their particular problems and agenda and must allow for this within, in a sense, the overall movement toward uh, women's liberation. I mean, yes, Polly Murray was a founder of institutions and a participant in many institutions, excelled in in different um, academic institutions. This is Alexis Pauline Gums again. But the reality is that none of those institutions actually embraced all of who Polly Murray was, and that didn't even come close to embracing the fullness of Polly Murray's radical vision. So it was not simply just like an ideal, like every everybody should do better, all institutions should do better. When I look at Polly Murray's life, I see a question about the very limits of institutions and institutionalization. 
And what happens when an institution, and we could say this about, we could say this about the NAACP and Ella Baker, for example, what happens when an institution is more committed to certain recognizable forms of participation in the society that already exists than it is in the the lived experiences of the people who are harmed most by the systems that already exist. You know, and I, I think that that is what Polly Murray was was consistently asking for. Thinking about national organization of women and it's like this is not all women who are being, you know, represented here or whose um priorities in life are being centered. And so it could be, and I don't know if Polly Murray thought this, it could be that every institution is a lie in its name, in its mission, in its vision statement. And they all leave out Black women. That's who they leave out. Over and over again. Yeah. And I think I would say it's not. that's not a coincidence. It, that's not like just a, a mean-spirited thing, though it is mean-spirited. It is actually, to me, because of the abundantly loving, inclusive world that Black women are not letting go of, you know, and that and that to me is what is Black feminist about Polly Murray's work is like, we didn't we didn't do it. Like we're we're still thinking about the children that are hungry when a white feminist movement is just like happy to be able to underpay Black women to work to take care of their children so they could do the same job as a white guy. That was not the vision, you know, and and so I think that there's there's so much love there. So why do you think then um, she didn't get the recognition she deserved during her lifetime? Some influential folks like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and you know, they're definitely household names, and they actually respected and knew the work of Polly Murray. They used her work. Why didn't she get probably the recognition she deserved while she was living? You know, I think that it's there in the question, right? This idea of recognition, right? And like, what is recognizable? And I think that there is something, and I come up against this as a person who's like, works in multiple forms and writes in multiple genres and, you know, things like this, that there's not an award for my experience, for the thing that's not fiction, but it's not poetry, but it's not academic book, but it's also all of those things. There's not an award called the vet. You may do something that you're like, this is wonderful. And people may respond to it in a wonderful way. But if it doesn't fit into one of those slots, then it's not that. And I think that for Polly Murray, you know, the other figures that you, that you named, even though who they are is probably much more complicated than whatever slots they've been recognized in, there's like, okay, civil rights, let it stand alone. You know, like women's rights and, and and feminism through legal transformation, like let that be one thing. And I think that there's something about those people, and Polly Murray is definitely one of these people who are not here to conform to one thing and make that thing better. Thank goodness for the people who are here to, to make one thing better because it's better now. Hooray, you know, and, and we can celebrate that. But Polly Murray is one of the people, and I identify in this tradition, who is not here to conform to that thing and make it better, but who is really here to transform what we even think it is. That's important work. 
And without that work, we, we wouldn't have the changes that we need. So when today's leaders call for unity, togetherness, harmony, reconciliation, what are they really asking of us? To move quickly past the moments of horror and hurt so we don't have to address the causes? To forgive their culpability in upholding systems that damage our democracy and invite more hatred, violence, and division? Have they done the work to ask that of us? Have they earned our attention to their pleas? Pauli Murray certainly did, and that's why I hear her call for harmony differently. I hear a brilliant woman who harnessed her intelligence, her moral code, and her talents to make a better world. I hear someone who suffered, really suffered adversity, saying, yes, we can come together. Pauli certainly knew her worth, but she held more power than she could have ever imagined, yielding outcomes she could only dream of. And so as this painful war against injustice wages on, and we think about what leaders we have lost would do, consider how Pauli's words, her truth, and her determination offer us a guide on what we can do today. We must accept the challenge of our existence, our existence being that of a a rejected, unwanted, persecuted minority. And that, in a sense, we cannot accept this. We must make our contribution to history. Next time on the podcast... So Murray creates this book, publishes it, and um, that was the book that was referenced by the NAACP when they had to figure out um, what are all the segregation laws all over the country. Polly Murray teams up with Thurgood Marshall. Pauly is a production of North Carolina Public Radio. Special thanks to the Southern Oral History Program. Our producers are Charlie Shelton Ormond and Stacia Brown. Lindsay Foster Thomas is our executive producer. Jenny Lawson is our engineer. I'm Leonida Inge. Thank you.